Well, hello there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blanc. I am super excited that you're here. Today's guest is going to educate us about multifamily development, something that I've always been thinking about. You know, we're always buying for cash flow, which is great, and there's reasons for that. Uh, one of them is, well, it's safer, right, to have something that cash flows. But Scott, for over two and a half decades, has built multifamily specifically, not super interesting to me, and maybe to you as well, because you're always thinking, my gosh, what if I could build something? It seems like the next logical extension, possibly if you've done a few deals, you're like, what if I could build something because it would open up more opportunity? You can build stuff uh, in more places than you can buy something that's existing cash flowing. Now, typically when you build stuff, you build class A. And I really don't like that as much, especially times like this. People are going to start fleeing class A into more class B. And uh, and I don't love development because of recessions like this, because two or three years is what typically what a project takes. And uh, you don't know what's going to happen. And our guest is Scott Chopin. And he's, he really puts a very interesting perspective on, on this and why he actually loves this time, this recession that we're in, and how why it's good for him, what his outlook is for him. And he also talks about how he got started with development because always one of the questions, well, how do you get into this? Seems like it's such an advanced thing. How do you get started with that? So let's get right in the show here with Scott Chopin. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. Now, this episode is sponsored by our Investor Incubator Mentoring Program, literally one of a kind in the world, and I would say probably the best mentoring program in, in the world. We have a very high success rate. In fact, we guarantee that within 12 months, you are going to do your first deal, and if you don't, we'll continue supporting you for as long as you can. So if you value mentoring, you have the ability to invest in yourself, schedule a free strategy session with us. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor and see if that's right for you. Also remember to grab tickets to DealMaker Live this year. It's going to be virtual. DealMakerLiveEvent.com is the website. And grab your tickets. We're going to have an amazing lineup of speakers and special guests and actual virtual networking. So we figured out using some cool technology where we can get darn close to the real thing. Minus the cocktails, of course, which is a real shame. But it's going to be an unbelievable event. DealMakerLiveEvent.com is where you can grab tickets. So I want to know more from Scott about how to get started in multifamily development and uh, what are some of the things that he's doing to mitigate what I think are the biggest risks in development. And he's got some really, really cool perspective. In fact, he's very excited about where we are in the market cycle right now. So let's get into the show with Scott Chopin. Let's do this. Scott, welcome to the show today. Hey, great, Michael. Great to be here. This is me great because we're going to talk about a topic I was always a bit curious about, which is multifamily development. And you're one of those multifamily developers, which is great. So I'm really looking forward yeah. to the show. <laughs> so I was wondering, well, should one do that as a multifamily syndicator who buys mm -hmm. only for cash flow? And yeah. uh, so I want to get into your story and how you got into it, why you got into it, and why what your outlook is in some of these uncertain times. And so I'm yep. really, really looking forward to kind of get into it. So how did you get started with multifamily development, Scott? So, you know, I come from a family background. Uh, my dad, Carrie, and my uncle, Mike, were both real estate developers for, you know, many, many decades. And so I got to grow up around the business, which for a period of time, Michael had me not want to do it, right? Like, uh, as I can kids, imagine. You, to go, like you want right. to go the opposite direction. But <laughs> funny little side story, I, I, you know, I had the background in real estate development, so I knew what that was, right? And I, I even think today, I, I sometimes explain to people what a real estate developer is because they go, 
So you build the buildings? I go, yeah, we hire people. Oh, so you don't do that. You, you design it. I go, well, I do that too, but you know, I hire people. So like, what do you do? Right. Um, <laughs> that so sounds the, like syndication, the, Scott. What do you yeah, exactly? Do? Right. Right. So <laughs> let's, you know, let's define what we mean. So my uncle Mike always had the great, you know, anecdote or example. And he said, it's like being the conductor of an orchestra right? So you're not playing the violin, but you know what the violin should play. You probably pick that person to play it. You pick the music, you put the team together, you know, found the space to rehearse, you drove the schedule to rehearse it. And at the end of the day, you were responsible for delivering a great piece of music and performance or not, right? And I always appreciated that example because I really think it, it does justice to what a real estate developer does, which like many real estate investors, operators do, you know, have a team of people of finance, you know, brokers, people that are doing, you know, the construction work on a value add or a new construction project. So there's a lot of similarities, but as we talk, we can get into where I see the differences between those two. So family background in it, uh, just to put closure on the question and that informed me of what it was. And then eventually I, I you know, finally, as I matured in my by 18 or 19, although that's, you know, pretty young, I just figured out that that was a business that I knew. And I sort of got a sense that I wanted to be an entrepreneur in real estate. And that really drove it from there. And really, from there on, everything I did was to, you know, to uh, train and gain knowledge and experience in that uh, real estate development space. And that's all I've been doing since I was, you know, out of college. So what did you do to train and prepare for that? So you went to college? Yeah, right. Okay, right. good. All right. You know, in my own way, I had, a, you know, so, okay, for a couple of things. So one is I, for a couple of years, I worked in the trade. So after high school and before I went to college, I didn't at that point know at, you know, 18 or 19 years old what I wanted to do. So I went to work in the trades and that taught me what I didn't want to do, which was working <laughs> nice. construction, but it gave me the sense of like how buildings went together. Right. So I, I've, you know, spent a couple of years and I got a good training background in what construction was. How do you build apartment buildings? In fact, all my construction work experience was in apartment buildings. I then, you know, decide, okay, I got to go to college. I decided to get a finance degree you know, business administration degree with uh, finance specialization. And then when I was in college, I took every real estate class I could. Now I was in, you know, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in California. Real estate wasn't a, a thing at the time in that school. We had no real estate center or anybody who's really focused on it. So I just designed my own, you know, curriculum, you know, construction management, urban planning, you know, maybe an architecture class or two at the low levels, as many finance classes as I could get that were relative to real estate. Uh, and then really, ultimately, once I get out of college, and this is true for any real estate developer, your main learning comes on the job after you get out of college. And so I picked a specific company and a, and a specific group of people to go to work for a guy named Mike Costa, who runs a company called High Ridge Costa here in SoCal, and knew from his history and who he was that I would have the great capability to learn on the job. And then just had this huge crash course and, you know, how to be a project manager and, you know, how to, you know, put together deals. And so I was there for four and a half years and that was ultimately so, my... So it's interesting, basis. you went to work for someone else, not for your family. Correct. Why'd you do that? Uh, great question. Um, you know, so at the time, my uncle's company was doing commercial real estate office buildings predominantly, a little bit of hotel work. I was interested in the apartment sector, so there wasn't necessarily a fit there. But I, I, you know, I think ultimately, you know, my in my mind, 
I wanted to go learn from others, right? Of course, you know, anybody who has a family business that they can go into, I don't like, I don't, you know, dissuade people from that. But ultimately, if you're going to get the best, I think most complete training with really no coddling, right? Like, you know, I'm a parent of three kids, you know, if any of my kids came to work, you know, you, you would want to think about how they would learn and work for you differently. Whereas if you're out in the professional industry, you have to perform, right? You have to gain knowledge at a level to remain and be competent and grow your value as an employee. And I didn't think of it in those terms in those days, you know, I was in my, you know, early twenties. But I knew that for me, I wanted to get the most exposure, broadest and deepest exposure. And I really needed to work for a bigger company, which was a subsidiary of a company called Kaufman Broad at the time called KB Home. And this is an apartment development division. So I had set my sights on working for a company that was going to be performing at a high level. And not That's that my great. family's company wasn't, but just different. So, but you, you did that with the idea that you're going to go out on your own, right? Or were you yeah. just, is that, yeah. you did it from the beginning, right? So, so I you did. did it so that you could learn essentially the business so that you can do it yourself? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And, and thank you for the great listening. I had a, uh, a family friend who was a, he was the, uh, he was the surf coach and uh, the, a counselor at Huntington Beach High School near where we live in SoCal. And he took me aside one day, I think I was like 19, I'd been in construction for a couple of years, and he took me through a series of questions. You know, what do you want to do? Do you want to, what business do you want to work in? And I said, I want to work in real estate. Uh, do you want to be a corporate guy or do you want to work for yourself? I said, work for myself. And so from that, he said, go here, get this degree. And he wasn't a real estate guy, but I think he had a way to look at it that was really just said, pick your career choice and your education choice around what you ultimately want to achieve, which is I wanted to work for myself as an entrepreneur in the real estate development business. That's great. So That's you worked question. for this other company, a great company, and you're, a, you're an employee, which you didn't want to do, but you were learning on the job. What kind of, what kind of things were you able to learn uh, at this company? Well, I, the way I always think of it is like, I think this is true for any real estate type, but in development particularly, there's a very broad set of skills and knowledge that you have to have. So, you know, you have to know how architecture works and how urban planning and zoning works, how construction works, how financing works, how the political process works. And none of them are particularly complicated, but it's the total knowledge of all those things working together in a, you know, an efficient manner that really makes real estate development projects work well and be successful and profitable. And so I always thought of it in the context of a framework of knowledge. So if I needed to know how to, you know, work with a title officer and get a title report and read it and make a clear, you know, logical assessment about what the title shows me, then I would pick that specific thing and I would dig as deep as I could. I'd read every document I could. I'd talk to everybody I could. And then I would say, okay, now I've got that little piece of the framework filled in. Now what's the other one, like in the next one? And in fact, in real estate development, when you go to work for somebody else, of course, you don't come in right at the beginning of the project where it all would then be a, a linear, orderly, you know, execution on a project. You come in and they go, okay, go. This project is finished, Scott. Go lease it up. You know, I mean, we'd have a team, so it wasn't just me doing the leasing, but you'd have to figure out how that works. And so you start a 
started and learned in an out of order way. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with this concept of a framework of knowledge. And so my job is, you know, as, as a, you know, responsible for my own learning, I said, I got to fill in that framework as completely as possible. So how to work with architects and design buildings on vacant land, how to find land, how to talk with banks, how to underwrite pro forma analysis, huge. I, I ran probably thousands and thousands of pro formas. You know, it was a model that Mike and Mike Costa and his senior managers had created and brought with them from, you know, their previous historical careers, but then I got trained on it, right? In fact, I, I use a, a, a format of that uh, today, right? We've sort of evolved over the years. You know, anything and everything that you could describe as being uh, important in the context of the life cycle of a development project, you had to learn, right? Because ultimately, as you said, at the end of the day, I knew I wanted to work for myself. And so my stance was, I got to learn it all, right? And I got to learn it effectively so that I can go out and actually do it, execute it, right? That's ultimately what knowledge is. Understanding means that you know what something is and does. Knowledge is you can actually go out and do it, right? Literally, you can go build a project or develop a project. And that's at the end of the four, four and a half years, that's actually where I arrived was I could basically be almost completely autonomous, find land, uh, you know, get the approvals, raise the capital, take it through its, you know, construction process, lease it up. And then, you know, at the end of the day, our group, KBMH was called, would own the asset uh, on a long-term asset management basis. It's great. You really got uh, such exposure to every aspect of the development. So it's not like your boss made you sit in your cubicle and focus only on crunching numbers or only on managing right. construction. You got really wide exposure. He allowed you to move around a little bit, which is which is amazing. Yeah. But the other lesson is, hey, you know, if you don't know something, go work for someone. Mm -hmm. And use that as a learning experience. Is it a job? Yes, yeah, a job. But so yeah. what? You're you're learning yeah. something, right? So I, yeah. I love that. What allowed you to essentially transition out of that? Because you still your your dream really was to do this on your on your own. Mm -hmm. Sometimes pulling that off is a little tricky. A lot of people yeah. uh, build something up on the side, uh, either side mm -hmm. gig, and you know there's income coming in from the side gig, and to the point where they can jump ship, or they create up uh, enough savings where they have a certain amount of runway and then quit their mm -hmm. job and how was it for you? How were you able to, to transition into your own company? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I, I actually wrote an article. I, I think I titled it, you know, six ways to build your real estate development career. And so I've, some of these are coming from this, this, you know, this writing that I did. But, you know, so one, you, you, at some point, I think you acknowledge that you know the complete process, right? So that's knowledge of how to execute on real estate projects. But then there's things beyond that. So like I think networks, so capital contacts, right? Just, you know, as true as any, any real estate investment, you know, endeavor, you want to have a great network of investors, of lenders that you work with. And I didn't necessarily have that when I first went out on my own, which I, so I left KB. I was at another company called Cirrus Regis, another multifamily development shop for a short period of time. And then it was at about 32 that I decided to leave there and form my own company, which is, you know, now what I own and operate or Pacific for going on 20 years now. So, you know, I knew that I knew how to do the projects. Like I recognized that. But then, you know, you have to develop these other networks of capability, right? Equity investors, right? Which, you know, you, you deal with a lot in your business as well. And so really where I went is I actually would recommend it. And I, this is how I did it is I actually would go do joint ventures with other developers. And in fact, the first 
two deals I ever did were with Mike Costa and his company that I used to work for because of course Mike knew me and we had this level of trust. He knew uh, and I had expressed to him, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to go out on my own. I have projects that I'm working on. And, you know, much like any joint venture, it's like I brought the project and he brought, you know, capital or I brought the project and he brought loan guarantee capacity, right? I know you do that sometimes in some of your offers. And so that was really a way, uh, the way I did it and really a way I recommend because the development business is hugely risky as you and I talked about, you know, a few weeks back. And it's not one that you want to try to, you know, learn on the job or, or rather learn on your own in your own deals. Now, some people might start small. Hey, I'm going to go do a duplex or a fourplex. And, you know, I, I think there's value to that. But even there, right, I, I would still say even if you're going to go build a duplex, still joint venture it with somebody who knows what they're doing. I pretty much promise you that there's people out in the industry like me who would always welcome, you know, a, a good deal, right? And that the model of pairing up and working together in a, in a joint venture it has value. I mean, we still do it today. I love and that. I offer that to others, you know, myself. We do, we do it a lot. It, it really allows people to, to go big really soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in many cases, uh, you know, the, the, you, the partner are bringing something. Uh, and in this case, it sounds like a project, a deal, which sometimes right. is hard to come by. So there's value. Yeah. Now, when yeah. you join venture, a lot of times when you're starting off, you're basically handing someone else a deal. And that person takes over the deal. They become essentially primary on the deal. Right. Did you do it that way as well? How did you join venture earlier on? Did you see, yeah. did you have a control or did mm-hmm. you still have control? And, and how did you kind of do it in the beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, very insightful. So thank you for that. Working with Mike Costa is a different gig. And, and I mean, in the most positive way. So, you know, how I describe the learning process that I had when I worked for him. Well, most companies wouldn't do that. They would do more like you describe, which is, hey, go, you know, go grind out numbers, right? Or, or you'll ever be a forward planner and work with the cities getting approvals and that's it, right? You're in your silo. Mike's philosophy always was, look, you're a project manager and RPMs are different. They know how to do everything from beginning to end. And I didn't know that when I went to work for him, Although I knew his ethic from, you know, just knowing him prior to that, at least, you know, just not working for him, you know, before, but knowing him socially, right, uh, privately. And Javine with Mike was more like, hey, we're here to support you. They happened to run a syndication shop and their main offer was as a syndicator. And so in this case, they were a developer and a syndicator. But my offer in the joint venture was really, hey, like you guys syndicate the deal. You provide the equity helped me with some loan guarantees they had in this case, you know, some lending relationships. I did a little bit as well. And so we paired those two together, but for all intents and purposes, they left us to manage the deal from a day-to-day standpoint. And in fact, we were the managing member of the, well, this is, these were limited partnerships. I'm thinking LLC, but you know, so they had control but not day-to-day oversight responsibility. So uh, obviously as a loan guarantor, they're going to make sure that they're protected and all major decisions are done jointly. But at the end of the day, if you looked at the partnership agreement, Michael, it would have said, hey, in certain instances, they reserve rights to decide ultimately, right? And me as a joint venture partner, it's sort of the junior partner position. I had to defer to them, right? And, and I also knew and trusted Mike. So I I could defer to him. Like I go, hey, if, if the project goes over budget, 
and they are called as a guarantor and they have to put money into the deal, well, they should have rights that, you know, are above ours, you know, if we're not doing our job. Now that didn't happen, but that would be an example of where you would defer ultimately if they're taking the ultimate responsibility as a guarantor of a loan, they should have the ultimate decision rights, right? And I think anybody going into a joint venture should recognize that that's, you know, dictated along the lines of value, right? You know, and if somebody who's starting the career in real estate development is going to be in a, in a, you know, a, a position where they have to defer to the, to the senior partner in the joint venture, who's probably providing capital or guarantees. And, you know, as you and I know, those are the most important things in the, in the deal, right? You got to find the deal, but you can have a great deal with no capital and, and no lending, right? Because no loan guarantees, you know, you don't have a deal ultimately. So to me, the financing is the heart of these deals. Yeah. And the financing partner usually will be, you know, senior to everybody else. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and we do that a lot in the multifamily space, really allows someone without any track record at all to get in their first deal. So it's right. magical. Now, for what I know about development, it's not like you really get paid along the way. So how did you pull <laughs> off, how did you pull off going from a paid salary position to not yeah. when some of these projects may not pay out for like two years? Like, how did you bridge that gap? Yeah, great question. So let's just say this, not well enough. <laughs> you know, I was an aggressive 32-year-old, wanted to launch. If I had to do it over again, Michael, I would always recommend people save up between two and three years of, you know, monthly income, have it in cash, have it available to live off of, and, you know, go in having prepared that ahead of time. You know, don't go out and buy a new car, right? You know, if you're wanting to have a family, you know, when you start the company, maybe wait a couple of years to have kids, right? Wait till you get deals closed, get paid, right? In fact, the running, you know, sort of joke I have at my house is, look, the deal's not real until the wire transfer hits the bank account, right? We sold the deal. We, you know, paid back the lenders. We paid the investors, paid their pref, paid their, their yield, and then we get a wire transfer into our bank, well, then that's really, you know, when we can really count on the money ultimately. So I would always recommend people go in with a very lengthy time period, not two to three years. People go, wow, that sounds like a long time. But where I go with it, Michael, is you want to have enough money to sustain long enough for the deal to work and, and make money, right? And if you run out of money six months early and the deal's, you know, under construction and, you know, hasn't yet leased and hasn't yet sold, and, you know, if you just had six more months of, of, you know, coverage on your household, you know, monthly, then you could be successful. And that could be the difference between, you know, surviving and not surviving. One thing to think about, though, is, is in many projects, you know, development projects, depending on the lender and the investor, the LP investor, a lot of projects can charge developer fees or you build a developer fee into the deal, right? And we do this very consistently and we have for, you know, for a long time. And that's the developer's, you know, overhead coverage, right? Now it's not, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get wealthy off the developer fee. It's really intended to serve the, the development team with some, you know, overhead costs and usually any project won't cover all the overhead, right? So, you know, you have to be thoughtful and, and you're planning for that. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll build in a developer fee pretty consistently. And in fact, I would always encourage anybody who's new. In fact, if anything, new developers, in my experience, and we did this the same, is you're so anxious to do the deal 
that you will usually try to like unload costs on the deal. Like, well, gosh, I, I won't ask for a developer fee or maybe you don't even know to ask for it. Uh, I won't ask for a developer fee because I want to really make the deal work. At the end of the day, if a deal is so thin that it breaks over the developer fee of, you know, whatever 3% of deal costs or, you know, depending on the structure that you agree with your investor, that's probably not the right deal to do anyways, Michael, right? Like it's, if it's so thin that that additional cost makes the deal unfeasible, then, you know, I would say, you know, move on to the next deal. Also, your investors should recognize that paying you through a two or three year development cycle basically keeps your attention on the deal. Now, our practice, you know, we don't do anything but manage our deals. And sometimes you have deals where, you know, maybe the developer fee, you know, didn't last throughout the build cycle. Maybe you had construction delays, maybe it rained for three months and, you know, your project was delayed. So, you know, you should always approach it with the, the right ethic, which is, look, I'm going to finish this thing no matter what happens in it, right? To get the deal to the end and lease it up and sell it or refi it is the ultimate goal, right? And if you're not focused on that solely or, or you know, first, then you, you may be focused or are focused on the wrong thing. But investors and I think lenders to some degree understand that by basically having a monthly overhead coverage amount uh, is going to basically sustain the developer, right? The I think the last thing an investor wants is a developer sponsor who's basically, you know, run out of capital in the midst of a deal and has to go do something to generate income, right? Um, because, you know, everybody has to do that at the end of the day. You know, it's not saying every developer asks for a developer fee or every investor or lender agrees to it. I'm just saying it is a market standard. People should think about, you know, how to ask for that and build it into the deal and make sure it's covered in their underwriting that the deal supports it appropriately. So you have developer fees uh, that are paid at closing, I assume, and then some uh, monthly, kind of like we have asset management fees. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Is development something that someone can do on the side? Let's say they have a full-time job and they can start with the development or yeah. is it so time intensive that it, you really can't do that? Yeah. So in my, you know, when I wrote that article, I always encourage people to go get a job in the development industry because it is so specialized. I mean, for many years, I always thought of investment in multifamily assets and development of multifamily assets is, you know, not exactly equal, but very, very similar. I'm actually in the last few years, Michael, I think of that much differently. I'm like, you know, the process of development of raw land into an apartment asset is so different. It has so many different, you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, actions that you're in that I really, I encourage people, look, if you're going to be a developer, if that's ultimately your career ambition, then you got to go do that, right? Now you could invest in deals and learn it, uh, you know, buying apartments and improving them, you know, value add type deal. That certainly will give you some, you know, concurrency of learning in that. But I would ultimately encourage people to go work for another company as a real estate developer. Now, to answer your question, can people do deals on the side? Absolutely. I mean, you know, and particularly if you if you picked a small deal, let's say you go do a duplex, you know, that's you know close to your house or close to where you work, but it will require, and not when it's convenient, your oversight and management of the process, right? You as the developer will always have to be driving the process and the execution of the project. There's nobody that will do that. Your general contractor won't do that. 
you know, it, maybe you have employees that, that, you know, might work for you if you can afford that in the context of your deal. But ultimately, I found that there's nobody who pays more attention to your deal than yourself or your partners or your investors, right? If, if, if everybody's aligned similarly. But I think you find the same in your own deals, right? You as the sponsor, as the operator, as the person, the deal maker, it's not going to get done as quickly, as effectively as it could if, if you're the one who's paying attention to it. So you have to measure how much time can you afford relative to your full-time job that can you donate or give or, or allocate to the project to make sure it gets done. That may mean that you have to visit the site daily. You know, I know people that, you know, worked a day job and they went there at seven o'clock in the morning and met with the general contractor, the, you know, the uh, superintendent of the GC, and then they went at, you know, five o'clock and, you know, they went on weekends, right? Make sure people are working. Are, are they doing the right stuff? Are they, you know, manning the job appropriately with labor? If you're not doing that, I will assure you that your project won't be as successful as it could be and, and may fail right? Yeah. Ultimately, you have to drive the process. So you've been doing this uh, quite a while. Give us a flavor of what kind of development that you've done. It's like size, where are they? Yeah. What kind of buildings? Yeah. Well, you, you mean historically, just yeah. like a, just yeah. examples. So our company is called Urban Pacific. And when I founded the company in 2000, I really ultimately wanted to pursue doing urban infill real estate development. Urban infill means taking underutilized sites or vacant sites in, in cities, you know, in urban areas and developing those. So we're not out on the periphery of a town, we're in the middle of a town, right, to, to sort of put a blunt edge on it. Um, so inside that space, we had done apartments, condos, and affordable housing rental. But if I think about it, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're a rental housing developer. So given all that, you know, we've done, you know, all different kinds of projects, but we're really a residential real estate development company and really an apartment development company ultimately. So we've done range of size of projects anywhere from, you know, a duplex all the way up to, I think our largest single project was a 453 unit uh, new construction apartment asset in Westminster, Colorado. We did that, finished that, sold that off in, in 2016. But really recently, just to give you some example of what we're looking at recently, we're focused on the workforce housing space. And so we're building a specific type of rental housing that serves multi-generational moderate income families. And we're focused on that space because we think there's a huge undersupply, high demand space that's really being completely underserved, you know, in the marketplace presently. And so we like the contrarian factor in that. Uh, we like that it's underserved, it's high demand, undersupplied. And then, you know, today, I mean, we're talking in, you know, April 2020, we're now in an environment in this, you know, in this recession that we're now going into where people are starting to combine families. So they may come out of two apartment units and they're now going to get roommates and start to economically share rental housing. And our product called Urban Townhouse or UTH is perfectly positioned to capture that new trend, although that was, you know, an already existing trend in high cost urban markets previous to that. That's pretty cool. So one of the things that at least my perception is development, and you said it earlier, is fairly risky, mm -hmm. right? And, and, yeah. and uh, sometimes when you're looking in from the outside, things are always risky because you don't know it, and therefore it's always risky. And yeah. when you're in it, well, you might, you might think it's risky, but you're always mitigating your risk. 
Mm-hmm. How do you, especially now in, a, in the, these times of what looks like, you know, a recession, essentially something that we've, you know, we've, I guess, been anticipating, right. um, you <laughs> yeah. know, and one of the concerns I always have about development, yeah, everything's great. And it takes you two or three years to build it out. You, and then you have to sell out in a, in a recession. Yeah. And, and now you're left holding the bag. And that's what happened kind of in 2008. Mm-hmm. And that is always kind of talk me out of trying to do development about that because I don't know what the heck's going to happen in two or three years. Now yeah. you as developer, you've been doing this for gosh, over 20 years. So you've been through a few market cycles. Yeah. You still got your shirt on. And so you obviously <laughs> you must've been able to manage that somehow. How do you manage through that risk? Right. Great question. So yeah. So 2008 taught us a lot of great lessons, you know, as we talked about on our you know previous conversations and actually everything we do today and have done for the last, you know, really since, you know, the recovery in, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012 has really been informed by what we saw in 2008. Now, of course, any market cycle up or down is going to be different than the next market cycle up or down. Right. And so we always, I think, anticipated that real estate would be less uh, impacted given it was so impacted in 2008. Although sitting here today with, you know, people not being able to pay their rents, you know, we, we see, you know, there's potential pressure on multifamily. But, you know, look, we're in a significantly different position in 2020 than we were in 2008, particularly we're just generally not overbuilt. Right. And so to answer your question, Real estate development is a long cycle, right? That two to three year period is is exactly right. In fact, you know, you might have a bigger project that's like longer. Maybe it's five years, right? Depending on the, the build cycle and the absorption. And so really what that has is it has you start to basically anticipate that. So every deal you have to look at on that timeline, what is the world going to look like in three years? And if I can't have a clear picture about how our product type will perform in that, you know, three or five year out in the future period, then I have to basically make the decision potentially to decline a project. So I'll give you an example, right? A real time example. So in 2016, we sold off our last two market rate assets. So that was the 453 unit, you know, basically a three story walk up surface parking, new construction project in Westminster, Colorado. And then we finished our last podium building, which is think of sort of a mid-rise high density building in Southern California in our hometown of Long Beach. And it was at that point in time that I looked at the marketplace. And although we were, you know, by that time, probably four years into the expansion, uh, I was starting to have a sense of some markets were starting to have a lot of supply come online, right? And, the, and really the main, one of the main dangers in real estate development is oversupply, right? Everybody's delivering a similar product into a given marketplace and they, you know, expand supply beyond what the demand can immediately, uh, you know, absorb. And so that started to get me thinking, you know, okay, we're starting to see oversupply signals. A lot of the big players, you know, the Trammell Crows and the Amleys of the world were coming into the markets that we were active in in Southern California. And they were all doing the same thing, Michael. They were doing a podium building. Think of four stories of stick built over a you know, one or two level concrete garage below it. That's a podium building. And they were all doing these studio and one bedrooms. They were all serving, you know, millennial and Gen Z demographic, which is, which is great. I mean, that's, that was the right move at the time. And, and maybe you can even describe today because they're the largest single, you know, demographic cohort in U.S. history. You know, these are kids of baby boomers and, and to some degree Gen Xers. And I don't fault anybody who chose that. But then where I go is I add an additional layer of thinking, which is, is the market 
yes, that's a big market. There's a lot of demand in that space, but how does it perform at a downturn? How do those people act in a recession? Is the oversupply a story? So in a recession, if everybody's got too many units to absorb, then the only thing you can really do to save your project if you're leasing up or in operations is lower rents, right? And I didn't want to be in a space where I had to lower rents against a Trammell Crow, right? They, they will win every time, you know, much deeper pockets, you know, lower cost of capital, right? That whole thing. So as we've always done, that sort of thing, have us say, well, what could we be doing that's different? What could we be doing that's contrarian or uncommon where we don't have to compete head to head with those guys because they are really good. Um, they're really smart. You know, they have super deep pockets. And so that was at the time that we decided to move into the workforce housing space. So those inside of that is a few different examples, but you know, you have to look out, say, will Gen Z or millennial kids stick around in a recession? And my assessment was that they're very mobile, they're young, they don't have much in the way of strong social networks to keep them in a particular place. You know, they don't have kids. Their kids aren't in school, right? And I'm generalizing here to some degree. Maybe they move to LA from, you know, Kansas. And when they lose their job in LA, they're going to go home, right? Right. And, and these are all perfectly coherent and correct decisions for those renters. I just say I choose not to rent to that particular demographic because in a recession, those projects are dependent on that particular demographic profile are going to be under pressure. So we went to a working class, blue collar, middle income family demographic, right? Two to four wage earners have strong social networks. They have kids. Kids are in school locally. Extended family lives around them. Maybe they're from here historically. Their jobs are close by. And in our assessment, we said, hey, this is a family that will hunker down in a recession. That They're not going to leave to go to Texas next week because everything they have is here. And I don't say that, you know, that's good or bad. I just say that's a profile that we want to rent to. And then our job is to provide them a, a specific rental housing product that attracts them, that has them pay, you know, appropriate rent levels for feasibility. And then in a recession, when they do batten down the hatches that we can, you know, be comfortable that we have a sustainable business plan you know, values will fall in the multifamily industry. You know, I've been saying this for years. It happened in 2008. But if you have a stable renter base that will stick around for, you know, several years in a recession potentially, then I go, that's a more defensive strategy. And then if I'm in a long-term hold, you know, capital structure, which we are in all of our projects now, then I can look forward to five or seven or 10 years from now, we've recovered, we've regained and maybe exceeded the value of our original development value. And I saw that in 2008, you know, a lot of distressed assets that were, you know, development deals that were sold off in 2008, 2009, that ultimately, if you look at the values now, I mean, they more than recovered value. In fact, they were, you know, three and four X, you know, value, depending on how you underwrite them, than they were in their original development costs, not notwithstanding even their drop in value during a recession. And overarching all that, Michael, is particularly Southern California, where we've done our most research, incomes and rents in the rental markets were incredibly stable, right, in Southern California. And that really is just functionally, you know, we were undersupplied in California historically and have been for several decades. Obviously, 2008 had a lot of people coming out of, you know, foreclosures going into the rental market, right? The story today in 2020 may be different. 
But the reality is, you know, we were just organizing around a product type that perform now, right? We were serving, you know, middle income families in a high rent marketplace. And those happen to also have the, you know, lifestyle that has them, you know, be defensive and, and stick around in a recession. And in fact, today, as of, you know, last three or four weeks in this lockdown period, uh, we've actually accelerated both in our leasing velocities uh, and rents are holding and even above pro forma, and then combined with lowering construction costs, and because of more availability of labor, we are actually seeing a, a, a net benefit to our business plan. So we're actually gearing up to do more projects in this space and can look forward to stable income, stable rents, stable tenant base, and lowering costs, lower land, lower construction, et cetera. So you're viewing this kind of time, uh, kind of an opportunity because more labor is available, therefore it's cheaper, better. Right. Um, you're, but you're also, uh, you're, you might be seeing some buying opportunities as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, we're already seeing land, uh, you know, I mean, just it's very scattered right now, but we're already seeing land costs drop. Um, you know, land sellers in our experience are usually the last to get on board with the down cycle. And so they're always sort of, you know, late to the game when it goes down and, you know, ever high or early when they think prices are going up. But, you know, the reality is this downturn will produce pressure on some land sellers that has them have to transact. Uh, and in fact, this is why we want to be in a long-term hold position on our apartment deals because then we don't have to sell, right? You know, we don't have to sell this year or next year or in three years. We'll say, you know, raise capital on a 10-year hold basis, then we don't have to transact. So lowering land costs and then, you know, projects are slowing down. You know, a lot of people will just, you know, withdraw projects from the marketplace um, obviously, in this present layoff environment from coronavirus, I even think people that were working in other industries are coming back to construction. In California, construction is considered to be an essential activity. And so we can continue to build through this lockdown phase. You know, we need to operate safely, of course, in the coronavirus environment. One of our projects actually has probably 20% more labor availability on the framing that we're undertaking right now than we had three or four weeks ago. And these are folks that are just, hey, look, my job shut down or, you know, I got laid off from another position, you know, do you have work and we happen to be active. And so that's, we've just seen an immediate impact of just more labor availability. And then we see, you know, on a near term go forward basis, that should translate into uh, lowering subcontract costs. I love that. Scott, I, I want to thank you for kind of providing us an update on, on development, how to get into it and your, kind of your outlook moving forward. I love that. Something definitely that we want to consider moving forward as well. How can people connect with you, Scott? Sure. Best bet is to go to our uh, website. It's www.urbanpacific.com. Feel free to peruse. We have a whole uh, broad category of investor education videos, articles, et cetera. Uh, there's a contact page on that. Um, my direct phone line and email address are on there. And I'm you know, always happy to, to, uh, to field questions. And if people want to reach out, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Love it, Scott. Thanks so much for being on the show today. All right, Michael. Thank you. Appreciate it. So if you're interested in learning more about development, 
uh, hop under Scott's website, urbanpacific.com. He's got some great resources there as well. And what I love about, about what Scott was saying is many things. There's always ways to mitigate risk. And he talked about some of the ways he does that with, with development. And the other thing also is that he's really excited about where we are in the market cycle. And I agree with him. I think in a short term, it's going to be a little bumpy and rough, but it's already shaken loose some buying opportunities. So we're really excited about that. We're also in a demographic class B, B minus. That's really tends to be very resilient in times like, like these. So again, I share his excitement uh, about that as well. Uh, by the way, if you're ever interested in not investing in Wall Street, in the stock market, but you're more interested in investing in something else like, um, let's see, maybe multifamily syndications, uh, but you're not sure yet, I have a special report for you. Check it out. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash report, and it compares the stock market to multifamily syndications, and you'll see how many boxes multifamily syndications checks and how many stock market basically does not check. It's pretty pretty amazing. So check that out at themichaelblank.com forward slash report. If you are ready to invest, we're always working on cool, new, and exciting opportunities. But we can't tell you about those yet until we get to know you a little bit better. And you can schedule a call with us by going to our investment firm, nighthawkequity.com, and clicking on the Join the Club button, and you can have a conversation with us, and then we can share you some upcoming opportunities. That's nighthawkequity.com forward slash join. Now is the best time than ever to continue in your own education, whether you're a passive investor or you're looking to become active in raising money and finding deals. It is literally the best time ever to get started right now. We have some time to educate ourselves and there's going to be opportunities and the ability to raise capital is going to be out there. The ability to invest in multifamily is going to be as well. So it's in the medium term going to be a win-win. I wish you all uh, stay safe out there and uh, hopefully we'll see you at DealMaker Live. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.